Psalm chapter 13 is what we're going to be covering this morning. And as we've been moving through this sermon series, as we've been moving through uh, the book of 1 Samuel, looking at uh, how God has historically worked in Israel's life, and as we saw that he worked through uh, Samuel as a prophet, as we saw that he has uh, raised up David as this anointed king. We see this coming to pass, but we see all along uh, the Lord at work, and the question that sits over the entire book is uh, Israel's struggle in the characters that are revealed in each passage, this determination or this, this question that they're asking about who is really the king? Who is the king of Israel? Historically, God has said that I will be your king after Israel acted in discontent, looking at the other nations, right? They kind of played this comparison game, which I think we're all tempted to do and look around at other people and be like, I want that. Like, how come we don't have one of those, right? Uh, They said, you know, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. We want him to go out before us in battle. We want him to rule over us. And the Lord said, you don't really know what you're asking for. I'm your king. This is a bad idea. But still they uh, decided that this is what they wanted. And so the Lord in uh, sometimes what happens, sometimes the worst thing that can happen to you is that the Lord gives you exactly what you ask for. Right. And in this case, he says, OK, well, you think you know better. Go ahead. Here you go. Here's your king, King Saul. And Saul turns out to be a not great king because he goes his own way. He does exactly what the Lord warns them that he would do. He takes all of their resources and all of their uh, their sons and daughters and enlists them into his armies and puts them, makes them his servants. And uh, this becomes all about Saul, what he wants and what he wants to do and how he wants to live. But the thrust of the scriptures has always been about comparing God who is king, who cares for his people, who meets his people's needs against Saul who is king, who is all about himself. He's not a king that is molded or is patterned after God's character. This was his purpose. This is what he was supposed to do, to represent God before the people as the king. And instead, Saul turns out to be incredibly selfish. It's about him. And I think that this is a good marker for us, a good tale for us to understand how it is when we as people do not recognize that Jesus is truly the king. Because when we recognize that Jesus is the king, we recognize that he cares for us. He wants to see our needs met. He wants to come to our aid before we even ask him to. He's always thinking about us, wanting to see that uh, that we're cared for properly. But when we elevate ourselves to the position of making our own decisions and wanting to be in control and wanting to be the king, when we say, I'm going to hold on to the reins so tightly, I'm going to try to shape the future, that we end up becoming about ourselves. We end up focusing so inwardly that we end up injuring ourselves and we injure other people around us. Because you can't possibly be thoughtful about others when you're only trying to shape yourself, when you're trying to to control your future. But Jesus has said from the very beginning that the way to have success in life, the way for you to see a future is precisely to give up your future. He comes out in the Gospels and says, if you're trying to protect your life, if you are somebody who is wanting to make sure that you are safe and secure, that you have a good future, the way to protect your life is not to try to protect it. He says, in fact, if you want to, if you want to save your life, you should lose it for my sake. And what Jesus is saying there is that if you give up your life to me, I'm going to take care of you better than you could ever take care of yourself. But he says, if you don't want to do that, 
If you want to protect your life, if you want to run your life, you're going to lose your life. You're not going to protect yourself. You can't possibly see all of the danger. You can't possibly understand everything that's up ahead. And that by protecting yourself, you'll actually lose your life. And so the way of Christ is the way of surrender, is the way to say, I'm done. I'm done controlling things. I have been pushing forward my whole life, trying to shape and manipulate things, trying to get my own way. But in the end, I see that it's failing. And it gets exhausting when you do that. And it seems that as we come to the text this morning, this is kind of the way that David is acting, right? If you recall, what we've looked at in the previous week is uh, in the previous couple chapters in 1 Samuel chapter 26. Well, I mean, we've been on this journey for 24, 25, 26, and now into 27 that we've looked at, David has kind of been on the run from King Saul. And the Lord has made a promise to him that you will be the king, David. He's not yet the king, but he's promised to be the king. And when God makes a promise, he keeps his promise 100% of the time. He has a fail rate of zero, perfect record. And so when he says something, you can know it is going to come to pass. You can know it's going to be true. But yet, David, again and again, seems to kind of get in these positions where circumstances start to look bad and he kind of gets himself into trouble. The last time that we looked at this was, in the end of chapter 26, David seems like he has brought Saul to a place where he's going to stop chasing him. He sneaks into Saul's camp and uh, the Lord provides cover for him by putting uh, the entire group of Saul's army to this deep sleep. David comes in, he takes Saul's spear, he takes, uh, he takes this water jug and they have this exchange there right at Saul's head while Saul's sleeping about like this other guy, Abishai, wants to kill him. And David's like, no, we shouldn't kill him. We shouldn't touch the Lord's anointed because the Lord, if he wants to uh, dispose of Saul, the Lord will do it in his time. He's in control. I'm not going to be the one to do that. And in that moment, David demonstrates this great faith. He's learned the lessons from the previous chapters where he said, you know, I get it. The Lord is the one who's in control. He's, he's going to assure that I am safe and that Saul is going to be um, taken care of in his time. And he throws out these kind of couple scenarios of how the Lord might do it. But as we come to, to the end of that, and he, he reveals himself to Saul and says, look, Saul, I could have been there. I could, I could have killed you. I've got your spear. I've got your water jug. I could have, could have destroyed you, but I didn't because I trust God. But as soon as that ends, we come into chapter 27 and look at what happens at the end of chapter or at the beginning of chapter 27. He says, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And so David trusts that God's going to take care of Saul, but he doesn't trust that he's going to be safe. And so he takes matters into his own hands and he leaves to the land of the Philistines. He goes to live with the enemy. He goes to the capital city of Israel's historic enemy. He lives among a pagan king because he's determined that God's not going to have his back. He was able to determine that God was going to have his back and that the Lord would take care of Saul in his time. But now he just, he, he's had the opportunity there to kill Saul and he doesn't do it. But for some reason, he escapes Saul. They have this exchange, and now he's like, but the Lord's not going to take care of me. And this is often how our hearts work, because we believe the truth of God's promises sometimes, and then when it comes to, you know, things getting a little bit more intense, when the rubber meets the road, and maybe sometimes it's been going on in life for a long time, where you're just like, man, I'm just tired. 
I'm tired of this. I'm ready to be done. And this seems to be David's perspective. He's like, I'm going to go to the land of the Philistines because I know that Saul won't chase me there. He's like, I just need a break. And sometimes he decides, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to go do my own thing. Right? You don't go hide among your enemy. That's a terrible battle strategy. You don't want to go and, and invest in uh, you know, th- this historic enemy. And David ends up getting himself into a bit of trouble. Now, as we come to chapter 13, I want to look at some of the heart struggles that we're going to attach to uh, what's happening here with David. Now, this psalm that we've looked at, that we're going to look at this morning, is a little bit different than some of the other psalms that we've looked at in the past because the other psalms that we've looked at are uniquely and specifically noted to be attached to a particular moment and situation in David's life, right? The little subscript there will be like, uh, when David, you know, uh, when Doeg the Edomite came and he slaughtered all these people, here's David's like behind the scenes basically uh, commentary in the psalms. As we come to Psalm 13, Psalm 13 is not one that is like uniquely said after David flees to the Philistines or like when he, uh, after he spares Saul again and, and before he goes to, uh, to flee to the Philistines. There, it's, not, it's not pinned to this exact moment, right? There's probably four or five Psalms that are very similar in tone, but I think this gets to the heart of the matter. And I want to highlight it here because because David does wrestle with these things in a very honest way. And I think that this perhaps could have been time to this. Some scholars believe that this is more specifically attached to this. Some of them believe that it's more attached to a, a time when he's uh, later in life where he's experiencing some hardships with his son Absalom. Either way, I think you get the same experience uh, of what David's dealing with. So we look at the text this morning kind of sitting with David's understanding Fleeing to the land of the Philistines, he said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Right? This is what David's saying. Like, the Lord's not going to take care of me. And so we come to Psalm 13, and we see him open with a fourfold phrase. Here we go. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long... Must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? I think we get the idea. David's like, I'm done. Like, we're fin- like this is like, I'm, I'm finished with this. I am discouraged. I'm beat down. And he is bringing his complaints to the Lord. This is what he says again and again. How long? He's like, God, I'm done. How long is this going to go on? How long are we going to keep doing this? How long is it going to be? Now, here's what David's getting at. He's not just saying, hey, like, um, I'm checking the progress bar. Like, are we like 63% of the way there? Are we like 77% of the way there? That's not what he's getting at. He's not saying like, "Um, God, uh, I'd like to see how far along we are here. Is that right? David is just straight up complaining. Like, that's what this is. He's just straight up complaining. When he says here how long, he attaches it to these various areas in his life where he's experiencing distress and where he's outrightly saying, God, you're not helping me with any of these areas. When he says, how long, O Lord, he's not just saying, like, how much longer is it going to be? He's saying, why are you not helping me? 
Why are you not coming to my aid? I'm going through all of these things. Now, here's what you need to know. There is an understanding and a negotiation that exists here with God and his people. This negotiation does not exist with God and people who are not Christians, right? This is an exchange that happens with people who belong to Jesus. If you're somebody who says that you're a Christian, that you trust in Christ for salvation, this is a different way, this is a way that you can experience and exchange with God in prayer. If you're not a Christian, if you don't trust in Christ for salvation, this is not an avenue that's open to you because you're not in a relationship with God that is built around uh, him coming like you're not in this covenant relationship. You're not in a relationship in which a way where there are promises to one another, that he will meet your needs in a particular way. Now, here's what you need to know. If you're not in a relationship with God in this sort of way, where you're, maybe you're like David and you're experiencing discouragement and distress and you're like, I, like, I don't know where to go. I don't, like, I'm done. I'm experiencing these hardships and I can't figure it out. The best way to solve that problem is to enter into that relationship with God because then it puts you in a clear way that you can relate to him on the basis of his character and on his faithfulness, right? So if you're outside of the family of God, if you're not a Christian, the quickest way to, to, to solve these things and to bring some stability to your life is to come into a relationship with God. Right? But these words are particularly for someone who is outside of the relationship or who is in a relationship with God but is struggling, who's discouraged, who's distressed. And David repeats this uh, kind of idea of longing and, and frustration and, and you know really distress, maybe depression at some point. He does this in, in kind of four different ways. First, he comes straight at the Lord. He deals with his distress with the Lord. First, he starts this way. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? He's asking the Lord straight up, like, have you forgotten me? Like, why are you not doing what I need you to do? Why are you not doing what, I'm, what I want from you? How long are you going to hide your face from me? David feels in such a way that the Lord is not providing the help that he requested. He says, God, here's what I'm going through, and I'm, I'm, I'm going through these difficulties and these hardships and these seasons, but you're not giving me what I want, right? As we spoke of last week, God doesn't want to give you what you want. He wants to give you what you need, because you often want the wrong thing, just like Israel wanted a king that was like the other nations. He tried to tell them again and again and again, this is not a good idea. You don't want that. If you do that, this will not be a good king. This will not be a favorable king. He's told them, I am your king. I will meet your needs. And the ironic thing, when they make this request, the Lord had just got done finishing what they specifically requested for. He defeated another nation without their help. He provided all this food for them. Like all the things that they wanted, he had already just provided for them, like literally in the previous chapter. But how quickly they had forgotten because they wanted their own way. They wanted to exalt themselves to this level of being a king. I want to make the rules. I want to go the, our own way. The Lord said, okay, well, if that's what you want, go for it. But it's going to bring pain. 
You see, the Lord doesn't resist us sometimes. When we keep hammering on that door and we're like, here's what I really want. Sometimes he's like, okay, well, if you're going to be hard-hearted in that, this is what you really want. I'm going to allow this to enter into your life, to bring that hardship. So that you might see by contrast how good he is compared to your choices. You can see that your choices, they're not great. They're not helpful. You think you know what you're doing, but you don't. Because you don't have the fullness of knowledge. You don't see what's going on in your life, in your heart, at the deepest level. We deceive ourselves sometimes. And so David has this understanding. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? David is saying these things. I want you to see this. David is saying these things. He feels they are true, but they're just his feelings. Just because they they feel true to him, but they're not factual. The Lord has not forsaken David. The Lord has not forgotten David. The Lord is just not giving David what he wants. This is his big gripe. You're not giving me what I want. How come you're not giving me what I want, God? You're not remembering me. The Lord's not forgotten him. He's not forsaken him. In fact, he's been with him every way along the part of the journey confirming to him his word and his promises again and again. But David has worked himself up. He's confused himself so thoroughly that he's gone his own way. He's making his own decisions, and now he's bringing these accusations against the Lord. We move to this second area of distress in David's life. How long, verse 2, must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart All the day. This is David's second area of distress, of trouble. This personal inward wrestling, this personal depression, this personal sorrow. Within himself, he's restless. He's like, I don't want to be someone who's tossing and turning at night. I don't want to be someone who's in my mind just mulling these things over. Like, why are you not helping me? This is leading me to like bad places. These things keep going on. And then he says to himself, How long must I take counsel in my soul? He feels alone. He feels isolated. He feels discouraged. And when he feels this way himself, when he's not reminding himself of the truth, then he tends to isolate himself even more. He tends to go in his own position even more. He gets more discouraged. And so as a result, he takes his own counsel. And what has that done for him? He takes counsel in my soul, and it has led him to have sorrow in his heart all the day. His own counsel has led to sorrow. He's saying this, but he's not realizing, like, my problem is that I'm trying to get my own way. My own counsel has led to my own downfall. My own decisions have brought me sorrow. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Right? This is something that we, we discussed last week. That oftentimes our hearts are the problem. When we take counsel in our own hearts, we're leading ourselves astray. We're saying, oh, well, here's what I've decided that I want to do. Here's my plan. 
And then you execute that plan and it fails. Because your plan is tainted. When we're discouraged, when we are going through these seasons of hardship, of distress, the answer is not to look inside, right? This is not another one of those things that you see like on your uh, social media feed. The answer is inside. Trust yourself. Look inside. Don't do that. Those are all lies. Don't do that, right? Don't follow your heart. Don't look inside. Don't trust yourself. The answer is not inside, right? When you're discouraged, the answer is not to look inside, but to look to the Lord. This is why David has got himself in trouble. Because he's taking counsel within himself. What do I want to do? I'm the master of my own soul. I'm the captain of the ship. I'm going to decide. And if anyone's going to come against me and they're going to say my plan is terrible, then your pride rises and you want to fight them and you become even more entrenched in your attitude, in your way. And you say, well, now I'm going to show you. Now I'm going to prove you wrong. Now I'm going to make everybody understand that you should not have doubted me because I will have success. I will accomplish this. Guess what? Last week, as we looked at the text, David had success. He went his own way. He made his own decisions and he was successful. He went and he went in the land of the Philistines and he went and fought these other like people groups and he had success. But was he obeying the Lord? You see, success is not attaining the desired outcome that you have set. If you want to understand how to succeed in life, Jesus has told us the way. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Find your identity in him, right? That's what he's getting at there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's step one, right? What does he say shortly thereafter? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So love God. And then he says, if you love me, the byproduct thereof will be that you obey so all success is, for the Christian, is obeying what Jesus asks us to do or where he's leading us to go. It's not accomplishing things. It's not goals. It's not these like key performance indicators that you've got to check off on your list. It's not submitting these reports and analytics that people are like, oh yeah, I see we're on track. The Lord doesn't have that because you don't know the track. You're not given this Gantt chart that says, here's where your life is going. You're not given these milestones that you have to hit. Because you don't know. He's not informing you where you're going. Right? Because we're not on a journey to accomplish a task. He's accomplished all the tasks. We are on a journey of knowing him and enjoying him. And so the primary drive and motivator in the Christian life is to understand how we can draw near to him. Not how we can do things for him. He's more efficient. He's better than we are at doing things. He doesn't need us to do that. He's inviting us into relationship with him. And so our drive, our pursuit as his people is to obey him, not to do things for him. Our success is connected to our obedience, not doing things for him. Right? This is why in the Old Testament you get like crazy stuff like, you know, you see these old these prophets that are like, oh yeah, like why don't you build a fire with like a bunch of dung and cook over it? And like, why don't you walk around naked and like preach like to all these people and tell them? But like also, 
you know, uh, just so you know, like the Lord tells him, like, just so you know, no one's going to listen to you, but I still want you to do it. Like, that does not seem like, a, you know, there's not, like a, not a lot of success in that, right? But success is defined as obedience, not getting the job done. He wasn't worried about, well, how many people are going to come to faith as a result of someone sharing this? He doesn't care about that. That's not what he's asking him to do. He's saying, obey me, follow me, walk with me. You don't have to know the end goal. You just have to say, Jesus, I'm going to walk with you today. I don't know how to do all the other stuff. I don't know where we're going, but today we're going to walk together. That's all he's asking for. Success is connected to your obedience, to pursuing him. David is not looking to the Lord. He's looking inside. Here's his third concern, his enemy, those who oppose him, those who come against him. He says this, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now he's dealing with his circumstance and those who oppose him. He's worried about those, this, you know, in this instance, it could be King Saul ascending above him, coming to a place where he is able to destroy David. He says, not only will it look terrible, not only will I be personally humiliated, it's going to be a threat to my, my ascension to the throne. I won't be the king if I'm destroyed. If my enemy ascends, I will never be the king. I will never have what God has promised me. Now, there's the practical aspect there where David's like afraid for his life. Like, if my enemy gets more powerful, if he ascends and, and he is over me, then like that's going to make things more difficult for me in my life. I could potentially be, uh, be killed. There's a physical threat that exists. But what he's also wrestling with there is he's like, why is God allowing this success of the enemy? Like, how come he's not coming and defeating the enemy for me? How come he's not coming and dealing with this problem? He's coming back to narrowing his vision to speak at the Lord. How come you are letting the enemy have success? I thought we were doing something. I thought we were going somewhere. I thought you had promises and, and this does not look like the direction that we're headed in. He doesn't believe that God should allow his enemies to ascend, to be exalted. So some confusion exists. These three areas that David has struggle with. His relationship with the Lord, feeling forgotten, feeling forsaken, feeling this distress over his own wrestling with his own heart and the enemy's ascension. He turns to verse 3 now to bring his cries to the Lord once again. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Now, as we move into verse 3, what we notice here is that David uses a traditional method uh, that would exist in uh, the Hebrew culture of repetition. Right? He says here, consider and answer me. Like these, this is kind of like a call and response sort of thing where he's kind of saying the same thing two times uh, in two different ways. He's asking the Lord to hear him, to respond to him. He's saying, I'm pressing in again, God. 
I'm pressing in again. I want you to hear me. He's not giving up. He desperately cries out to the Lord to give him wisdom and instruction. Right? Here's the first thing that he does that seems to be correct. When he experiences this season of hardship and distress, he doesn't just say, like, forget it, God's not answering me. He comes ever more so to the place where he is saying, God, you're my only hope. I don't know what to do. I can't go anywhere else. No one else has the answers. There's nowhere else for me to go. I've got to cry out to you in desperation. Now, friends, I will tell you, if you start off this way, you'll never get to the spot where you are in despair as David felt. Where are you, God? If he had only maintained this perspective, God, you're the only one that can solve this problem. You're the only one that can meet these needs. Your, only your plan is the best plan. Only your way is the way that's going to lead to life and peace and happiness. Only your way. But at some point, David let his own little heart come into the frame and say, well, maybe my way might be good. I'm not really, I'm asking the Lord and he's not really like giving me. So maybe like he needs some ideas. Maybe he needs, maybe he needs me to contribute. Maybe he needs me to kind of give him some, something to kind of springboard off his ideas. Sometimes we, we kind of get in this spot where we start operating in that fashion. We say, well, you know, let me, let me throw some stuff out there. That might be great. David's let himself get involved in such a way where he has said, all right, God, you're not responding, so I'm going to come up with a plan. Um, why don't you go ahead and just try and stop me? We're going to get this done. Uh, I just need you to show up and you know, provide some of the things I'm missing, but don't worry, I've got it all handled. But here, he kind of returns to a place of desperation. It seems like he's kind of coming home after he's made these complaints before the Lord. He cries out to the Lord to hear him. And he makes this declaration. You have to light up my eyes, God, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He's saying, if you don't provide this, this provision for me, if you don't meet my needs, if you don't come to my aid, I will soon, my eyes will soon be closed forever in death. I need you to bring this light back. He says, unless you come to my aid, God, unless you come to my aid, my enemies will be claiming victory over me and they will re be rejoicing and they will be saying, I have, I have prevailed over him. He says, I need your help. I don't want them to be rejoicing that I am shaken, that I am defeated, that I am crushed. We have a pivot point here that happens in verse 3 and 4. Where he realizes, I've got to cry out in desperation. He realizes that the Lord is the only one who can come to his aid. The Lord is the only one that can meet his needs. Right, this is what we were talking about from the beginning. This is what Jesus was saying. Stop trying to protect your life. If you want to save your life, give it up. Lose it for my sake, Jesus says. Stop trying to get your own way. Just say, you do your thing, God. I just want to be in your family. I just want to be a part of you. I just want, I want you to, to be in charge. I'm done. 
David has come to that point here. He's coming to that spot in verse 3 and 4. He says, look, it's going to go really bad for me. I need you to be in charge. I'm done trying to control it. I'm done trying to manipulate it. You're the only one that can help. And so he returns. He returns then to a perspective that he has previously held. Look at verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You see, what happens is David makes this pivot. However great the pressure that he was experiencing, however hard this was for him, he got to a point where he understood the choice is still mine to make. The choice is still mine to make. I have to decide to give it up, to trust God. It's not up to King Saul who's after him. It's not up to the circumstances that surround him. He says, I'm going to, as my last act of being the king of my own life, I'm going to say, I'm done. I'm done. I'm going to give it up. And so he does. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. He speaks now, interestingly, in past tense. He doesn't say, but I will trust in your steadfast love. He says, I'm remembering what existed in my heart. I, I remember this covenant that we are in. I remember who you are to me, God, that you said, if I put my trust in you, if I give my life to you, that you will always take care of me. He says, I'm returning to that. I'm remembering it. I have trusted in your steadfast love. He remembers, I do trust God. I do. He turns his attention now, not to his circumstances, but to God. So he's Climbing out of his mess. Because now he's not looking at all the things that he has to manipulate and control. He's like, I'm just going to look at God. Because he's going to deal with all that mess. He's going to be the one that's going to, uh, to handle the trials and tribulations. He's going to be the one that sees me through my seasons of difficulty and suffering and hardship. He will be the one. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. He trusts in the Lord. He knows that he's going to live because the Lord has promised to him that he will be the king. He's remembering the promises of God. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. That God will really do what he said he would do. Friends, as you come to faith. If you are a Christian, this is something that you can rejoice in. Even though things seem like they're upside down sometimes, even though the world seems broken, even though it seems like there are hardships and suffering and injustice, you can know that one day all things will be made right. That you will see all the things that are sad come untrue. All the things that are broken made new. He will be faithful to his word. This is his promise to his people. 
we can take this same uh, exhortation that David gives. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. We can say, God will do it. He will promise to save us, to help us in our time of hardship and trial. He will help us in our moments of difficulty. He will help us, not just at the end day when everything is made new, but he will help us each day as he promises his Holy Spirit to those who trust in him for salvation. He says, if you want to navigate this world, if you want to navigate this life, as you come to faith in me, I will give you the helper, the Holy Spirit who helps you every day, who helps you navigate the hardships and difficulties of life, who helps you understand how you can obey him. This is why Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. If you're weighed down with burdens, if you're weighed down with difficulties, come to me. And what does he say? He doesn't just say, I'm going to help you with those and, you know, give you some energy. He says, I will take your burdens. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and weighed down with burdens. He says, for my yoke is easy. What, what my burden is, what I have to give to you, it's easy. It's light. And it will give you rest for your souls. He's like, and I will take your burden. He takes all the hardships and difficulties that we have. And he gives us his burden, which is easy and light and is peaceful for our souls. He gives us invitation. He has given us this opportunity to have this daily. He trusts in the Lord, knowing that he's going to receive the promises of God. Now, what happened? What's the difference here? What's the difference here? Well, if you look at the phrasing, we can see. David says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. The last time we looked at David's heart, he said, then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. David has flipped his heart and said, I put my heart on the wrong thing. I'm speaking to myself about myself and trying to make my own decisions. Now he says, I'm going to rejoice in God and his promises. He's reoriented his heart to be focused upon God's faithfulness, upon his character. He's redirected his feelings, his heart, to be centered around God. What happens here is that instead of being mastered by his feelings, now he masters his feelings and says, I'm going to set my heart on God. I'm going to tell my heart to start rejoicing. I'm going to speak within and say, look, heart, quit doing that. Quit trying to be in control. You need to be focused on God. If you trust in Christ for salvation, you can rejoice and tell your heart to start rejoicing. You can be like, all right, it's time to go. We're time, it's time to respond because God is good. Right? One way that David does this, he expresses his joy, is through singing. Look at verse 6. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is one way that he expresses this joy, by singing to the Lord. It's going to express his joy and as you sing to the Lord, it leads your heart further into the truth of those words that you sing about God, and then you become more joyful as a result. 
because he has dealt bountifully with me. It's the Lord's faithfulness, the Lord's goodness in his life that reminds David of the things that he should be singing about, that he's reminded of those promises. That God has granted to him this completeness, this fullness of life. He says, I've got to sing about that. I've been worried about these other situations, but I need to be reminded to rejoice in his goodness, his faithfulness, his character, what he has given to me already. You see, David comes full circle. He comes full circle. And this is a pattern that we need to learn because we do want to bring our thoughts and our, our, our concerns and our complaints to the Lord. That's the place to do it, right? You're not to complain to one another. You bring your thoughts and your prayers to the Lord. You say, God, I have no clue what's going on. Why are you not working? This is the avenue by which we should do this. And for David, he felt forgotten. He needed to be reminded that the Lord remembered him. He needed to be reminded. The Lord does not forget. The Lord does not forsake. He remembers every single person. He cares for every single person. It's something that we need to be reminded of. But the Lord sees and knows and remembers every single one of us at every moment in our life. They need to be reminded that God cares and loves and thinks of us all the time. You know, this past week, I was, uh, you know, as most of you know, I was in New York for, for business and for the entire weekend, like, my schedule is, like, pretty crazy when I'm there. It's usually, like, 8 a.m. to midnight, like, nonstop work and go sleep for, like, five hours and get up and do it again, you know, five days in a row. And at some point in the week, I mean, you know, I get done and I get done with work late and FaceTime my family for a bit. Just like, hey, what's happening? I'm taking off my suit. I'm going to get in the shower. <laughs> go jump in the bed, right? Have like a quick chat and try to get some rest before the next day. My days are just packed. They're super busy and meetings and, you know, different appointments that I have throughout the day. Uh, but at some point during the week, I was just like, I bet you like my wife doesn't like realize like I'm thinking about her all the time here, like when I'm here. So then I had to like pull out my phone and send like a little like text message that was just like, hey, I miss you, like thinking about you, right? Because if you don't hear anything, it's just like, it could be true, it could be true, but like, it's nice to be told, like to be reminded, right? And in our day and age, it's like, you know, if, if, if you're my family, you got like the, like I, we got the little watch that will be like, and then it'll like remind you. So you, you'll definitely know you got that, right? You definitely got that. But, but in these ancient times, like they didn't have that. David didn't know. We don't know. How, how, are, how are we to, to be reminded? How are we to, to know that God has not forgotten us? Well, David can be reminded. The people of God, Israel, could be reminded that God has not forgotten them. Many times throughout their history, they're asking, God, where are you? Why have you forgotten us? Sometimes we feel that way. God, what in the heck is going on? Why have you forgotten us? You're not, it doesn't seem like you're showing up. It doesn't seem like you're doing what you said you would do. I 
we, we, we sang a song this morning that before the throne of God that uses a phrase, a line that comes from a passage in Isaiah 49 that speaks of God's remembrance of us, of his people, that he will never forget us. Isaiah 49, verse 13, he says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on the afflicted. So what's happening here? He's speaking. He's saying you should rejoice. He's speaking to people who are in the same situation that David is, that sometimes we are, of distress, where things are just like, it does not feel good where there's suffering, when you tend to forget that God is thinking of you, that he remembers you, that he cares for you. And he says, sing, break forth into song. The Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. He's like, I know, I know what's happening and he's going to meet their needs. Verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. There it is, like Jerusalem, they're like, What's going on? Like the Lord is not helping us. He's not meeting our needs. The response is this. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Right? He says, if you have a child, you're not going to forget your child. You're not going to forget to feed your child. He's like, but a human that might forget. Maybe your kid grows up a little bit and you're like, you forget to, like, you get busy in your day and, and maybe you forget. Maybe you forget to make a meal for them. Maybe it gets a little too late and you're like, oh man, I totally spaced. I was busy with other things. I got distracted. Even these may forget, but the Lord says, yet I will not forget you. He makes his promise. I will not forget you. How do we know? He says, verse 16, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Right? He says, look, every time I look down, I see you before me. Every time I look around, there's nothing that I can do in the world that I am not catching a glimpse of you. Every place that I begin to work, every place that I begin to move, I always have you in view. You are never forgotten. Never forgotten. In fact, more than that, we're told that you're not only not forgotten, but we are specifically remembered. Specifically remembered. By having this engraved on the palms of his hands. But as you look to Jesus, as we are encouraged to look to Jesus. By the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, we're told to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We're told that when Jesus went to the cross, he had joy set before him. What was that joy? It was us. It was us that he's thinking about as he's at the cross, as he's experiencing this deepest moment of distress. He says that there is joy set before him, that he will then be in relationship with us. He's completing this work so that we can then be in relationship with him. Because at, before this point, that we were all outside of the family of God, that we weren't his people. But he makes a way for us to become his people through his work at the cross. He doesn't want us to be forgotten. He's coming to make sure that we are forever remembered. That there's not a way for us to be forgotten. 
The way that you're forgotten is if that you are separated from God. But Jesus at the cross said specifically, I am here to be myself forsaken for you so that you will never be forsaken and you will never be forgotten. Right? Remember, as he's at the cross, he cries on that loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the first time where he, he, he is forsaken, that he is forgotten. Right? It's an interesting choice what happens here because in Mark chapter 14, just before this, Jesus speaks to the Lord in prayer as a father. He calls him Abba, Father. A relational uh, exchange there. That I know you, that I enjoy you, that I'm in this tight relationship with you. But now here he speaks in, uh, in, this, in this name, this title of God, uh, El, separate. It's not like this uh, paternal like, uh, sort, of, sort of word for God. It's like a righteous judge God. Like, you, like, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? He doesn't speak in that familiar language. Because something is being broken there. He is being forgotten. He is being forsaken in that moment for us. So that we will never have to experience that. So that we can be remembered forever. More than that, we're given a new name we find described in the book of Revelation. We're, we're given this name that, that means that we're a part of his family. But we're welcomed into his house. I want to draw your attention to one last passage in Isaiah 56, verse 5, where we find that we are given new names, and this is specifically salvation for those who are foreign, which is all of us. We're outside the family of God, but we're welcomed in. He says this, Isaiah 56, verse 5, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Friends, we will not be forsaken. We will not be forgotten. We will forever be remembered. He made sure of it through his work at the cross. He made sure that there would be an opportunity for us to dwell within his house, to be a part of his family. He gave us this opportunity through his work at the cross so that we don't have to ask these same questions, even though we feel it sometimes, even though we get discouraged, we don't have to say, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That will never be the case. Because he was forgotten. He was forsaken for us. So that we would never experience that. We have this opportunity to rejoice in him and in his work. It starts in the same place that it started for David. When we make that turning point and say, I'm done being the king. <laughs> you, you be the king. You rule and reign, God. You're in charge. I'm not in charge. I want to follow you. Whether, whether you are somebody who has been a Christian for a long time, that you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, 
we are told by Jesus, and not only that we have to lose our life for his sake, but that each day we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. It's a daily commitment. It's not just like you do it one time and you're like, oh yeah, that was cool. That was like awesome that one time I did that thing. But each day you have to wake up and say, I'm going to follow you today. Here we go. You're the king, Jesus. You're making that allegiance with him. You are the king and I'm going to follow you. But it starts one day at a time. It continues on for those who are Christians. If you're not a Christian, maybe today is the first day where you say, I'm ready. I'm ready. Like, I'm just ready to just be like, I'm not the king. I'm going to follow you. I want to, I want to get going. And then the, you just decide the next day. Again, Jesus, you're still the king. Let's go. And the next day after that, Jesus, you're still the king. Let's go. We walk with him daily. We pursue him daily. And he makes the fullness of himself available to us. And so let's pray. We'll respond together. And um, we'll, we'll see what the Lord does among us. Lord, we're thankful for your kindness and your love to us. We pray that you would give us insight. That we would feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in those moments where we are so tempted to want to be the king, to want to go our own way, to follow our own path. But again, this morning, we are declaring that you are the king and that we trust you. And that you are the only way. And so, Lord, we don't want to protect our lives, but we want to offer them up to you because you are a good king. You don't take advantage of us, but you love us so faithfully with such purity. We don't have to be afraid. We can trust in your faithfulness. And so, Lord, cause us to respond now. We want to see you exalted, Jesus. We love you. Amen.